So we are still in the feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> it's, it's the day after. And as I wrote that as a part of the introduction, I said to myself, you know, this has been a pretty long day. <laughs> We've been here for five weeks. In part five of Jesus' discourse on the true bread following the miracle that he performed in the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has made this declaration. It is the first I am statement that he makes as recorded in the Gospel of John. And he says that I am the bread of life come down out of heaven sent by the Father to do his will. And so as the true bread out of heaven, one must respond in faith to him believing in Him for the forgiveness of sin with the promise that all who do believe in Him will have eternal life. Those who reject Him will not have eternal life. There is no other way. There is no shortcut. There is no roundabout in how we get to the Father. It only travels through the Son. Man does not have spiritual life in himself. He does not have the ability to create spiritual life in his attempts to worship God or serve God or create a religious system or structure, man is totally dependent upon God to give to him spiritual life. So in this coming to Jesus by faith, he has described it in verse 40 of John chapter 6 as beholding him and believing in him, and in verse 54, by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, both of these concepts are incredibly difficult for Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, to believe. There are physical reasons and spiritual reasons that this is difficult for them to hold on to spiritually because they can see no need for repentance. They have the epitome of self-righteousness. They are God's gift to the world. And if you want to see what God is like, they would encourage you to look to them. So they see no spiritual need to come to Jesus. Their religious expression through Judaism is completely satisfactory to them. And they don't need to add anything to that or replace it with something else. Physically, they cannot fathom this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Whatever that might have meant to them, they were unwilling to even consider the implications of what Jesus was saying and spiritual truth in communicating who he is and man's need for him and how spiritual life can only be found in him. So we come to the end of the discourse And it is now decision time for these that are hearing this message that Jesus has spoken to them after the feeding of the 5,000. Anytime anyone ever hears the truth of God's Word spoken or taught, there is a decision to be made. That decision is always about obeying what has been taught or in rejecting what has been taught. Illustrated very well in the parable of the sower, there's the explanation of how people respond to the truth of God's Word. And there are only three possible ways that one can respond to it. One is obedience. Like the seed that was sown on the good soil, it bore fruit. It settled deep into the soil and brought forth fruit, indicating what happens when we allow God's Word to penetrate deeply into our heart. The second response is a superficial or a half-hearted obedience to the Word of God, like the seed that fell on the rocks or amongst the thorns, the heat of the day and the concerns of life killed whatever might have been growing, indicating that there was not a full commitment to the truth of God's Word. The third and final response is to outright reject 
what God has said. Like the seed that fell on the hard road and the birds came and ate it away and absolutely nothing happened. This third response is a description of how the Jewish people and most especially the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, responded to Jesus' teaching. They scoffed, they rejected, they ridiculed, they questioned. And unfortunately, most of the Galilean Jews, just like most of the Judean Jews, also rejected Jesus in his person and Jesus in his teaching. Now, John does not describe for us with any detail the length or the significance of the ministry that Jesus had, especially in Galilee. But Jesus spent a lot of time there traveling through the villages, going through the little towns. This is the area where he was born and raised and grew up in. They had heard his words, they had seen his miracles, and yet they still refused to believe in him. And their willful rejection to his person and his teaching was inexcusable. And the Gospel of Matthew records this response to the Galilean Jews. Jesus says, He began to denounce the cities in which most of His miracles were done because they did not repent. They rejected the message. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of of judgment than for you. Now remembering Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wicked places in all the Old Testament at the time, Jesus said if these messages and if these miracles would have been performed in their midst, they would have repented and the city would still exist. And so in this denouncing of these cities that have seen Jesus, they have beheld His miracles, they have heard His teaching, and in the rejection of Him, He has very plainly said, you will descend into Hades, you will have no life with the Father because you have not given yourself to Me. Now there's a bit of a transition in this conversation. It's no longer a discourse for the large crowd. It is now focused on those who have remained and those who would consider themselves to be the disciples of Jesus. Most of the crowd has dispersed. Those who would never even give an ear or a thought to coming to Jesus, they have left. And now he has this this remnant, if you will, of people who are still listening to his words, and he focuses his attention on them. You'll notice here in verse 60 that the word disciple is used, and that is a generic term for anyone who professes to follow Jesus. And then later down in verse 67, there will be a transition to the 12. So we're going to look at this really in two different sections in one long section as Jesus speaks to the superficial followers and then to the 12. Reading in verse 60 through 71 of John chapter 6. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, the eating the flesh, the drinking of the blood, said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. 
And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So in this lengthy discourse that Jesus has shared with the Jewish people, it's now time for the response. And so we see the initial response by the large crowd in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, this distinction is important, again, for this word disciple, meaning the large group of people who professed to believe in Jesus. They had attached themselves to Jesus' ministry because of the miracles and now because of the bread. And there was always this hope and this expectation that Jesus was going to do something more and perhaps something for me personally. And so there were large numbers of people who had been following him and now a large number of these people have gone away. The lives they live and the convictions they hold don't appear to be consistent with this loose profession of faith that they have made in Jesus Christ. Don't we see that in our church today? Don't we see that all across our country where people profess to love Jesus and follow Him and be saved by Him and yet the lives they live and the values that they hold don't appear to be consistent with this profession that they've made The discourse is now completed and the people now respond to what they've heard. And their conclusion is this. This is difficult. Who can listen to it? The word listen is better understood as accept. Who can accept this teaching? The difficulty was not in the ability to understand what Jesus was saying. The difficulty was in accepting what Jesus was saying. And so the response of the people in whole was to reject both Jesus the person and the content of his teaching. Now, as we think back on the discourse and all that Jesus has said about himself to the people, there's basically four aspects of this rejection or of this difficulty that the people had in what Jesus was saying. Number one, their desire was for physical, not spiritual. They were more interested in food and miracles that healed them, the hope of a political Messiah that would free them from Roman oppression than they were in understanding or pursuing the spiritual realities of what Jesus was saying. Now, we can read these words in this discourse, and if we think purely in our literal fashion, we would say, well, yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and he's the bread of life. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But the people didn't have a difficulty in understanding it. They had a difficulty in accepting what it was that Jesus had said. Secondly, their desire was for status quo in religious matters. They were unwilling to relinquish their own authority in religious matters and believe that their religious practice was insufficient to please God. 
You know, it occurs to me that there are some people who have a religious practice that has been familiar to them for years and years and years, and when they are confronted with the idea that that is insufficient, that they need to do something different from what they've always done, there is this concern that comes over them, and the potential is that they will dismiss what they are hearing now, and they will reject its content because they are completely satisfied with their own religious expression, believing that it is sufficient to please the Father. This is exactly what's taking place in the lives of these Jewish leaders. Jesus' claim that He was the only source of spiritual life and eternal life was offensive to them. For them, if you remember... Spiritual life and eternal life was bound up in knowledge of the Old Testament. The more you knew, the more life you had. It wasn't about a relationship. It was about information. Observing the man-made traditions that they had created as an extension of the Mosaic Law created the platform for them to live out something that would please God. And they were so, so sure that what they were going to do and how they were living their lives pleased God that they were unwilling to even consider for a moment Jesus' teaching that He and He alone is the source of eternal life. Now, if you remember what's written in the Gospel accounts, Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees hypocrites. Not only don't you do what's in the Mosaic Law, you don't do what you're holding other people accountable in doing. So they had this satisfaction in the religious expression that made them unwilling to consider for a moment that they might be wrong and there was something else that they needed to do in order to satisfy God. Number three, their desire was to elevate Moses over Jesus. Now, the people had no difficulty in believing that Moses was sent from God to lead the people and that at the hand of Moses, the the manna from heaven came down to them as God's provision But Moses was the central figure in this whole thing, and they were unwilling to ascribe the same belief to Jesus. I would say in the vernacular, they were hanging their hats on the ministry and the person of Moses, and they couldn't think for a second that someone or something else was ever going to replace him in their lives. Jesus repeatedly made comparisons of the superiority of himself to Moses, and him being the bread of life to the bread that came at the hand of Moses in the wilderness wanderings. And he continued to say that those, the, the ministry of Moses, the bread at the hand of Moses, was inferior to who he was and what it was that he was sent to do by the Father. In addition to this, Jesus alone has seen the Father and has been uniquely sent by the Father to do his will. Moses could never proclaim that. Moses had to hide his face because no one could see the glory of God and live. Jesus and Jesus alone has seen the glory of the Father because He is in the Father, one with the Father, and has been sent to this earth that He created by the Father to carry out the plan of redemption. Moses was simply a prophet and a leader anointed by the Father for a season, a typological Messiah, a foreshadowing of the Jesus that was going to come many, many years down the road. Fourthly, their desire was for comfortable theology. The metaphor for eating the bread of life as eating his flesh and drinking his blood was just too much for them. 
They could not allow anything to unsettle the certainty of their practice and their beliefs. And because that was so, they rejected the teachings of Jesus. False disciples love to emphasize God's love and His mercy and His grace and His goodness, but there's little room for repentance. And there's even less for the wrath of God and almost no consideration for the idea of self-denial. You see, false disciples create a picture of the God that they want, not the God that is, And they then try to justify their behavior to satisfy this God that they've created with the ability to excuse anything that they say or think or do because they're serving the God of their creation, not the God that has existed in all eternity. You talk about this idea of self-denial, of dying to yourself. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 that the mark of a true disciple is if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily... And follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. False disciples have no room for the exclusivity that exists within Jesus as the only way to the Father. There's no room for repentance. There's no idea of self-denial. They just want a God who is love, who is merciful and gracious, and who understands, and I'm sure God has made an exception for me. I'm just special, right? That's the way we believe in our world today, is that the rules and the laws don't apply to me. Surely you can make an exception because it's me. That doesn't work within God's plan of salvation and the sending of a son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The Jewish people were unwilling to acknowledge that they were in spiritual bankruptcy Jesus is requiring them to confess their sin, to commit to Him as the only source of salvation. They have become offended, and they have decided to leave. The show is not worth this. I'm not going to follow any longer. So false disciples will accept, to a degree, the person of Christ, but not really His words. They have no problem viewing Him as a baby in a manger. They recognize the idea that perhaps he was a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance. The idea that the ideal that humans everywhere should emulate the life that Jesus lived, or that he was a source of health and wealth and worldly happiness. And then they discover that Jesus requires something more from them than just an intellectual acknowledgement of who he is, that he isn't going to be the meal ticket that they had hoped for, and so they decide to leave. These are the people who have had the seed of God's Word fall in the thorns and on the rocks. They celebrate Jesus for a short period of time, and then it all gets to be too much, and they wander away. So this message of coming to Him, believing in Him alone for spiritual life, is too much, and so the broad group of disciples now begin to leave Jesus turns now to his disciples, or the crowd is leaving. He turns now to the disciples, the ones who profess to know him. Does this offend you? Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? The word stumble here in the Greek is the word scandalizo. You've probably heard the word scandalon, and that's the root word that this comes from. It means to take offense. 
or to give up believing. And make no mistake about it, Jesus causes many to stumble. Since He is the only way to the Father, since He is the only source of eternal life, you have to go through Jesus to get to eternal life, and He is the stumbling block for those who will not ever make it to the Father. They just can't accept His person, and they can't accept His teaching. And so Jesus ups the ante with these who profess to know Him, and He asks this question, What about my ascension? That seems a bit out of place here in verse 62. And he says, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? So this idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood was incredibly offensive to the crowd that was here. And so Jesus goes a little bit deeper and says, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Now, this is an intentional, open-ended question that Jesus asks that will eventually elicit a response from every single human that has ever lived. It's much more than just the physical ascension and the small number of witnesses who actually saw Jesus ascend back to where He came from. It has everything to do with that which enables His eventual physical ascension, which was what? The crucifixion. It wasn't until Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and finished His brief ministry after His resurrection that He then ascended back to the Father, to the place where Jesus has come from. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. His path to the ascension goes through the cross. So if you think it's offensive to hear me say you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, what then will you say, what then will you think and do when you see me on the cross? Jesus on the cross is the supreme scandal. Because after all, He is the alleged Messiah... And for the Jew, the Messiah was going to be a political, military, social leader who was going to bring Israel back to the glory days of David. So what then are you going to think and say when you see me on the cross? You see, the cross is the supreme scandal. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles Foolishness. The idea of crucifying an alleged Messiah is absolutely outrageous to the Jewish mind. Yet this was the preordained plan of God, the plan of redemption set in eternity past, for the Father to send His one and only Son to come into the world and to die on the cross. The moment of Jesus' greatest humiliation and the shame comes at His time on the cross, and it is also the moment of His supreme glorification. It is the path of His return to the glory He had with the Father before the world began. The hour when the Son of Man is despised and rejected by men, when He is pierced for the transgressions of mankind and crushed for our iniquities, is the very means to the time when He will be raised up and highly exalted. Jesus' ascension that he's referring to here, is the cross. What will you think? What will you say? What will you do when you see me on the cross? Jesus goes on to say in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so Jesus says, in a sense, it's not about the flesh. It's all about the spirit. He's reiterating the truth that he has taught in this lengthy discourse that there's this contrast between physical food and spiritual food, physical life and spiritual life, temporary life and eternal life. He is the source of life. You have to read verse 63 in the context of the entire discourse for it to make sense and fit in the way that Jesus intends. The Old Testament is incredibly clear about the origin and the source of life. Genesis 1-2, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit, capital S, of God was moving over the surface of the waters, ready to bring forth incredible life. It's not just the physical life of creation that the Spirit is responsible for, but it is the spiritual life of lost mankind who are dead in their sin and separated from God that Jesus is talking about here. He's speaking the words of life since He possesses the Spirit without limit and has been sent by God to deliver these words of life so that, man, that the words of life that man so desperately needs. You know, we're hungry and we need some food, but more than we need food, we need spiritual life. And this is the point that Jesus is is making here. Sadly, many are going to miss this message, just as the Jews in Jesus' time missed the message. In verse 64, Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So if we don't combine faith with the message that Jesus has preached and faith in the person that Jesus has proclaimed himself to be, then this message has absolutely no value to us at all. It isn't that they just don't believe. It isn't just a misunderstanding. They have instead completely rejected the message that Jesus has shared. Notice what it says here, that Jesus knew from the beginning who would and who would not believe. His, he is omniscient, and he knows the hearts of all mankind. So as he looks out at the large group of superficial followers, he knew amongst them who did and who did not believe. It's a broad description of the many, and also of the one that would betray him. So it seems to me that there is a broad description of the false disciples who would not believe as it speaks to the disciples as a whole. Then there is the turning to the twelve and the one who would betray him, Judas Iscariot. He is the supreme example of a false disciple. Now, John doesn't record the calling of the twelve, but we know that Judas was in this from the very beginning. He had seen virtually everything that Jesus has done. He's heard virtually everything that Jesus has said, and yet he is still not going to believe He maintained the outward appearance, but inwardly was not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 65, we see this tension between human responsibility and believing and God's sovereign call to this gift of salvation. Verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus was not disappointed in the large numbers of people who were now leaving him. He didn't want the disciples to misunderstand that either and in emphasizing that unless the Father has called you, you are not going to come to him. 
It was not granted to the masses, and it was not granted to Judas to believe. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. So not only did they stop believing in him and following him, but very likely they became a part of the group in about 12 months who would be in the crowd calling out for his crucifixion because they had rejected the person and the message of Christ. Now, you'll notice in these verses there's a very, very slight transition as Jesus now directs his attention towards the twelve. He's no longer talking about the masses and the superficial followers, but he's talking about this very select group. What the masses wanted, he would not give, and what he offered, they would not receive. And now it's time to focus on the twelve. So he turns to them and says, what about you? In the face of this difficult, under, uh, this, this difficult teaching and seeing all of these people now leaving me and walking away, what about you? And Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, you do not want to go away also, do you? And so this is the first time that John uses the term the twelve. He'll use it two more times in this passage and then he doesn't use it again until much, much later in the gospel. But the question is asked in such a way that Jesus expects a negative response because he knows the hearts of man. He is expecting them to say, no, we're not going to leave you. The question is asked more for their sake than for his. They need to articulate a response to Jesus more than he needs to hear it. There's probably not many more than twelve that actually do remain at this time. And they need to assert their commitment to Him regardless of what others are going to do because it's only going to get more difficult to follow Him when He's no longer there. The same thing is true for us today. We live in a world where we are in the minority. The masses don't share our belief in Christ. They don't accept His teachings. They don't hold our values. We don't have the same commitments. Our test of faithfulness comes and we are expected to stand firm in our faith in the face of growing opposition. When the masses are clamoring, when they're leaving the church, what are you and I going to do? Well, we come across Peter's confession here, and these are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And here's what Peter says in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can almost hear in Peter's voice this incredulous response that Jesus even asked the question. Who else are we going to go to? I mean, you're the guy. You're it. It's clear that Peter believes he's speaking for the entire group as well as himself personally when he says, to whom shall we go? And later on we see the same plural usage in including the other members of the twelve And so when we look at Peter's confession, there's really two pieces of this. One is, what's the alternative? I doubt very seriously that Peter understood with great clarity the discourse on Jesus being the bread of life. I imagine he had a lot of questions about what it meant to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. But make no mistake about it, Peter wasn't going anywhere because he knew that there was no other alternative. 
Jesus speaks the words of eternal life. Now, Peter's a good, faithful Jew. He knows all the religious practice. He knows what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are clinging to. And he has heard Jesus speak words of eternal life, different from anything he's ever heard before. Peter doesn't get caught up in what he can't yet understand, and he can't envision trusting in anything or anyone else like he does the things Jesus says. You know, you and I are going to read passages in the Bible. We're going to experience things in our life, and they're going to be unexplainable and un understandable to us. Have you been in a circumstance where you said, I don't understand why I'm going through this. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I don't like this. God, I want you to take this away. God, I want you to change this. God, I want you to bring this to an end. When we come across difficult passages of Scripture, when we encounter difficult circumstances in our life, to whom shall we go? What's the alternative? Do we turn to pop psychology? Do we turn to self-help? Do we turn to the things that the world provides? To whom shall we go when there's things in our life that we don't understand and we can't explain? What are we going to give ourselves to? What will determine the course of our life? What will define who we are? And what, if anything, is going to cause us to rethink that commitment to the person and the message of Christ? The second part of Peter's confession is we believe... And we know, verse 68, excuse me, 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, collectively, we. Not only is there implicit trust in what Jesus says, but it is also in who Jesus is. You are the Holy One of God. That can be said about nobody else. Peter was thoroughly confident in the words that Jesus spoke and he had no doubt about the authority that Jesus claimed to have because Peter was convinced, the twelve were convinced, that he is the Holy One of God. Well, the crowd was only willing to accept Jesus as a kind of second Moses whom they hoped would supply their material needs. The twelve saw him for who he really is. And then we come to verse 70, but not all. Verse 70, 71, And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus indicated that his choice of the twelve was conscious and deliberate, each with a specific purpose in mind. Eleven as eventual apostles after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and one, the reprobate who would betray him and become the worst of worst traitors the world has ever known. It's interesting that Judas is always introduced as the betrayer. It was his preordained role just as it was God's preordained plan for Jesus to come and give his life as a sacrifice. It was God's plan for these eleven to become apostles who would then change the world through their ministry. The word devil here means slanderer or false accuser. 
And so it's a reminder that Satan is the supreme adversary of God, and he used Judas as his tool in opposing the work of God. And that's what the enemy always wants to do. The enemy wants to oppose the work of God in the church, in our lives individually, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our witness, in everything about our Christianity. The enemy wants to bring slanderous accusations and he wants to disrupt the work of God in and through the body of Christ. As in the incident involving Peter, when Jesus foretold of his impending death on the way to Jerusalem, we read in Matthew chapter 16, Peter took him, Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Judas, however, is still held responsible for his actions. Jesus will go on to say in Matthew chapter 26, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So we are responsible for our actions, even though we might be under the influence of someone or something else. Judas didn't get a free pass because he was influenced by Satan to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither are we given a free pass because we've been influenced by the world, the culture, or other people in denouncing Jesus or rejecting him or holding him at arm's length. We will be held accountable for the decisions that we've made in our life. So we have this idea here as a part of the response, the true and the false disciples. The true disciples completely embrace the person of Jesus as the one and only Son of God, the Messiah sent by God to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the one who is the source of eternal life. True disciples also accept the message of Jesus and what it means to come to the Father, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Everything that Jesus said flows from his person as a part of the Trinity, coexistent with the Father from eternity past, sent by the Father into the world he created to speak words of life so that you and I could have spiritual life. False disciples create a God that meets their need. False disciples arbitrarily choose to accept or reject the teaching of Jesus based upon our interests, our abilities, our preferences. As you bow your heads and close your eyes and thinking about a true disciple, none of us are perfect. All of us fall and fail. We all need to repent and confess. We all need to grow in our walk with the Lord. But there is a distinction between truly accepting Christ in his person and his teaching and not fully embracing him. Father, we recognize the ability for there to be false disciples within the church. Those who talk the talk but don't really walk the walk. Those who have been dependent upon some kind of an emotional experience or some kind of past provision that you made. But the truth of a true disciple is lived out in the daily life, in the surrender to you, the worship of you, in service to you. And Father, while we do that imperfectly, would you reveal to us the true desire of our hearts so that we can repent of our sin or have the blinders removed from our eyes and give to you ourselves 
and come to you by faith for eternal life. Father, how we thank you for the great love that you have. We're also mindful for the wrath saved for those who reject you. God, would you burden our hearts to live a life solely for you, steeped in faithfulness, a desire to honor and please, no matter the cost. You are worthy of our very best. You are the Holy One of God. We give you thanks for the sacrifice you made. We give you thanks for our eternal life that has come through the cross. We give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a song of commitment.